see. Good. So, um, congratulations on um, making it this far <laughs> in the retreat. <laughs> yeah. And really, um, as uh, Bhante Gunaratana, as a Selenese uh, Buddhist monk, he says that uh, practice meditation takes a, a certain type of gumption. He uses the word gumption, and I like that word gumption, because gumption is kind of like, it takes some guts to sit with ourselves. Yeah. Hafiz, a Persian poet, he says, not many teachers in this world can give you as much enlightenment in one year as sitting all alone in your closet, maybe even one, two, or three days. That would do. And that means not leaving, and you better get yourself uh, a few sandwiches and, and also a chamber pot. No reading, uh-uh. No writing either. That would be cheating. Let's aim for the high and 360 degree detox. Although we could say that this sitting alone is not recommended if you're normally sedated or you've been under a doctor's surveillance because of your brain. But dear one, don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. Don't let Hafiz fool you. There is a ruby buried inside here. So Hafiz um, speaks about this ruby, and you might be asking yourself, well, where is it? <laughs> I don't see it. And Bandi Gunaratana writes about when we practice meditation at times, he says that somewhere in this process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. That your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels, barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and hopeless. Does that sound familiar? For some of us, perhaps. But he goes on to say that's not a problem. It's not a problem. You weren't any crazier yesterday than you are today. It's always been this way, but perhaps we've just never noticed. You're not any crazier than you were yesterday. So I think it's very important when we begin meditation retreats that, um, you know, particularly after the first day or two of practice to help uh, to normalize um, at times uh, the challenges that come up when we practice. It's normal, it's predictable, and I actually find that to be very comforting if you consult a mindfulness meditation text, particularly uh, the main teaching is in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, and in the Fourth Foundation which actually are teachings on how to work with the practice and 
teachings to be understood and to be realized, the very first teaching in the fourth foundation is the teaching of the, what's known as the five hindrances that come up when you meditate. It's kind of nice. Was, I know for me, when I first read about the hindrances and began practicing, and they were going left and right, that, that my teacher was saying, yeah, this is normal, this is predictable. It's, you know, it's, and, and so there was, there was something that was very helpful. It was very, oh, I'm not the only one that has these types of uh, challenges. And what are the five? <coughs> we could say, say briefly, it's the mind full of wanting. And it's opposite of not wanting what's here. And third is restlessness. Fourth is sleepiness. And fifth is doubt. Has anybody been visited with any of these today? Wanting mind. Anybody have wanting mind sitting here? Dreaming about something better than here? Maybe the next car I'm planning for? Food, sex, movies, check my email, shopping. Maybe the person next to me is kind of interesting. I want to get to know that person more, though I can't talk. Maybe I'm going off um, thinking about my vacation. Maybe I'm thinking about my next retreat and how that's going to be. <laughs> Maybe I'll get a new... Bob, Bob's got a kind of a nice sitting bench, and it's a little bit taller, and I might, well, I might get a sitting bench or a nice Zafu, and it's going to be really nice, and get one of those Zabatons. Mind with some wanting. Yeah. Anybody have some wantings? Yeah? Yeah. So this is normal. Our mind can become preoccupied with the wanting, and conversely, of course, there's the not wanting. I'm not liking this moment. Why isn't this moment measuring up to my hopes and expectations? Why is the person next to me or three persons away from me breathing so loudly? I call this the Vipassana Vendetta. This moment is just not going the way I want. It's too cold, it's too hot. The bed's too hard, it's too soft. So there's a sense of aversion that arises as we meditate from time to time. It was only like this, it was only like that. So this wanting and not wanting are like those opposite sides of the same coin. Anybody have any not wanting moments here? Restlessness, boredom. Anybody know about that today? Yeah. Has anybody ever thought, I wonder if, has anyone ever died of restlessness or boredom sitting on the cushion? <laughs> Will I be the first one? <laughs> Crawling out of my skin, I'm like a pacing tiger. Restlessness, boredom. Meditation is boring. So sometimes we can be occupied with the storm of restlessness crawling out of our skin, very uncomfortable. And at times, of course, uh, sleepiness, or sometimes what they, they call it, it's kind of a more archaic language, but I'm very fond of it. It's sloth and torpor. <laughs> Anybody know about sloth and torpor? Westerners said it's not a law firm. It's, <laughs> it's a state of consciousness. 
sluggish, neither perception nor perception, dreamy, not quite here, sleeping. Looking at that zafu, that bench, thinking I should sit on it and really awaken, but I really deeply want to put my head on it and go to sleep. Yeah. And then, of course, is doubt. You know, mindfulness is really popular these days. I hear it's really helpful, but would it help me? You know, I, I, don't, I, I don't know whether you know, I'm still having pain. And, of course, uh, I'm restless, I'm wanting, I'm not wanting, and I'm sleepy. So, I mean, what the heck? I mean, is this going to really help me? Doubt. What, what is this? Will this help me? Anybody have that? Yeah. Nobody's raising their hand. <laughs> yeah, it's normal to have doubt at times. Will this be of any help? And as comfortable as it is to have one of these uh, types of hindrances arising, and of course wandering mind into wanting, to not wanting, to restlessness, to doubt, to sleepiness, and so forth, and sometimes we can have what's known as an MHA, which is a multiple hindrance attack, <laughs> where we're not only feeling wanting, but we're also not wanting and restless and tired and filled with doubt almost seemingly all at the same time. It's not a comfortable place to be in. And I want to just again normalize the challenges that come up in meditation practice. This is normal. We're not used to sitting like this, and of course we're very used to, you know, going here and going there and doing this and doing that, and um, so here we are, without books, without talking, without looking at one another, without any internet, without a lot of distractions, and I'm, if sometimes I feel like meditation is walking into the hall of mirrors starring me, myself, and I with the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows and all that's there. And it's not easy. This is why I love what Bhante G says, is it takes gumption to sit with ourselves. It takes a certain type of gumption, a certain uh, willingness to investigate into our body and mind. And so a friend of mine says, the first few days of meditation, it's kind of like just being in a swamp. And so I even like that, like a swamp-like. It's like, you know walking through the muck. And it's helpful again, as I said, that uh, in the meditation texts and the teachings, it's almost like the meditational law of relativity that when you begin to practice, you will experience from time to time, not all the time, so that's good news, but you will experience from time to time this wanting, this not wanting, restlessness, sleepiness, and doubt. It's just part of what's here at times when we practice. And they're called hindrances because we can say that they, because they hinder in some ways the steadying of the mind and the body. And without the sense of steadying, it's very difficult to develop clearer seeing, wisdom, compassion, these beautiful qualities that can arise within the practice. So there's a sense of, they hinder the sense of steadiness. And there's actually a beautiful uh, little simile in the Dharma that speaks about, it's called the simile of the lake. And it's, 
It's particularly a very clear lake that you can see from the surface right to the bottom. But if you're filled with a lot of wanting, it's kind of like throwing a lot of red dyes into the water. So, you know, it, it, it colors the water so you can't really see to the bottom. And of course, when you're feeling the sense of not wanting, an aversion is kind of like boiling water. And you also can't see clearly into the bottom. And when it's restless, it's like kind of like strong winds. The water's choppy and it's moving here and there. And so you can't, again, see into the clarity deep beneath the surface. And I love this description they talk about when sleepiness is like algae on the water. It's just all algae and like can't see through anything. And then, of course, doubt is the water's been the bottom has been all stirred up. It's muddy. You just can't see anything. Yeah. So these things arise when we practice. And the general antidote for any of these challenges, though there can be also some specific aspects with each of these challenges as well, but we'll say the common antidote is mindfulness itself awareness. And with this understanding of mindfulness and awareness, we can begin to discover the hindrances are not a problem, but potentially a gateway once we begin to work with them into helping to assist to steady the mind and the body. And it's very interesting, in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, as I mentioned, the first teaching is of the hindrances, and the teaching right after that is these factors of awakening, beginning with mindfulness. And when there's awareness, we begin to get interested. We want to investigate. We want to get to understand what's here. And this sits on a whole cascade of factors of awakening to understand, to penetrate more deeply into seeing things very clearly. And beginning to steady the mind and the body with great balance and perspective. When we become aware, and this is why the importance of mindfulness is so um, paramount, is that when we become aware, we are gaining knowledge. My Wonderful old meditation teacher, Tungpulu Toya Kabaye Siero. He used to say, if you know, and I'm using the word know in the spelling of K-N-O-W, if you know that wanting or not wanting or restlessness or sleepiness or doubt is arising, if you know it, you're gaining knowledge. If you don't know it, you're accumulating more ignorance spinning into the cycle. They're feeding that cycle of reactivity. The Dharma speaks about um, this profound teaching called dependent origination. Its very simple meaning is if you don't know, as Tempo Lucero, my teacher, used to say, if you don't know, you will go around and around. So this not knowing is the continually reacting not even aware that I'm, lo that I'm lost and wanting because I'm just hook and line and sinker, just lost in the wanting. But if you know, 
you can begin to break the cycle. So the Seattle used to say about dependent origination of breaking this cycle of suffering or reactivity, if you know, it will break. If you don't know, you will go around and around. And so the knowing is so important in our practice. Once we become aware, we have some choices. And there's a more contemporary, uh, you know, beautiful quote from Viktor Frankl, who was a psychiatrist and a concentration camp survivor. And, and he speaks about um, choice and awareness. And he says that between the stimulus and the response, there is a space. And in that space lies my freedom to choose. And it's a very beautiful and powerful quote that's speaking about that if we become aware, we can begin to respond, if you will, in a much more skillful, much more um, constructive way. We can begin to navigate much more skillfully when we become aware. When we're unaware, we're lost. We're in a place of reactivity. So we speak about this profound difference of reactivity that's fueled by these old patterns, these old reactions. But when we become aware, we can begin to respond. There's a teaching story called Autobiography in Five Short Chapters by Patricia Nelson. She says in Chapter 1, I'm walking down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. And I'm helpless, and I'm there for a long time. In chapter two, I walk down that same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in again. I see where I am. It's my fault. I get out quickly this time. Chapter three, I'm walking down that same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in again. I fall in again. It's a habit, you know. This is what I do. Here I am. <laughs> Many of us know about chapter three. We can live there a long time. And when we, the factor of awakening, the factors of awareness arise, mindfulness, I'm walking down that same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, this is chapter four, I walk around the hole. So that place where we can begin walking down that same street, I see the hole in the sidewalk, but I begin to walk around the hole. If you know, it will break. If you don't know, you will go round and around. Of course, chapter five, after you've got the coffee mug and the t-shirt and all the stuff, you're walking down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, and just go down another street. Like, no thank you. Don't need to go there anymore. Yeah. So awareness plays a powerful role when we become aware of these hindrances and challenges arising within us. They are to be known. They are to be acknowledged to be felt, to be investigated, to, to be understood, this is what's here. And then we can begin to work in a much more skillful way. And when you look at the state of wanting, wanting another zafu, wanting this, wanting that, and, you know, so when this arises, let it be known. Ah, here's wanting. In the moment prior, I didn't even know that I was wanting. I was just lost in the wanting mind. Now I'm aware, let it be known, let it be experienced, let it be felt. Doesn't necessarily have to be analyzed, but to be known and to be experienced. And it's interesting as we feel into the experience of it, perhaps that deep longing that's underneath there will reveal itself. 
Because often that sense of wanting is a place of longing. I want something else. What is this wanting? We begin to investigate. And again, not in an analytical way, but just the feeling into that wanting, or conversely feeling into the not wanting. And may this also be known. Oh, here's aversion. Here's anger. May it be felt. May it be known. May it be acknowledged. It too is fueled with a sense of longing for something to be different, to get to know it, to feel it, to begin to work with it, which is very different than perhaps when you were not aware of it and we were just reacting and planning our escape. We probably have already done that a number of times. We've already planned our escape and how I'm going to get out of this retreat. So when we're lost, we're just in that mode of planning. But when I all of a sudden see, oh, here's the planning. Here's, oh, this is uncomfortableness. And now I want to get a little bit more interested in this. This is a very different state than the prior one. So again, restlessness, sleepiness, feel it, know it. Again, that restlessness is a certain longing. It's very close to aversion. It's that sense of, I can hardly sit in my own skin. So learning to investigate this body, the mind. Sleepiness, the sloth and torpor, again, once we become aware, we can begin to work with it. We can change our posture. Particularly in the afternoon, we can go from sitting to standing. We can open our eyes. Sleepiness is very common in the first few days of retreat. I, I actually have this fantasy that I'll share with you. And the fantasy is, is that, whether it's at Spirit Rock or here, I have this fantasy that when we come on retreat for like a five-day retreat, that on the floor is 40 mattresses. <laughs> and the meditation instructions are, lie on them, sleep, and be happy. I'll, wait, I'll wake you up in two or three days. And then we'll begin to sit up and kind of check it out, what's going on. So I think many of us come in, we are exhausted. We don't even at times know how tired we are. We've sometimes got lost the, uh, a sense of the circadian or the biorhythms. And, you know, the art of siesta is long gone in our Western culture. Taking rest after the meal and listening to the body. Sometimes we don't even know how tired we are until we stop. And I know there's that edge. I've got to meditate. I've got to meditate. And there's that other smaller voice that says, wants to put the head on the pillow. And sometimes we need to listen to that, to rest the body. And maybe this is a very powerful discovery for some of us to realize we maybe even not realized how exhausted we are until we've begun to stop, to be present. So caring for the body, and also at the same time we are here, what is the wise effort here? So maybe, you know, I just want to invite us to reflect upon wise effort. There is the wise effort to open the eyes, to make intention to be awake. Particularly when we understand, like our life, like at the moment of conception, there was a and here we are, result of that moment of conception. But in that moment of conception, it was, a candle was lit, and the wick is burning down. And we don't know 
it's gonna it's gonna end whether it goes right to the very end where there's just no more wax or a poof it can go like this at any moment and so that type of contemplation is very powerful to awaken that uh, you know what is here so let us use wise discernment and there's times where we have to recognize you know I'm hitting my head against the wall trying to stay awake and I need to rest this body and of course sometimes we're just going to sleep because we just don't want to feel anything it's just too painful to be here and that also can happen at times it's painful to be here to be in our bodies to be in our lives so that's also very important to notice. Well, isn't this interesting? Every time I try to meditate, I'm just going to sleep, and all of a sudden I realize, oh, yeah, that's because uh, I don't even want to go there. That's just, yeah. So, but it's important to know, ah, so there's something here. There's some resistance. I don't want to feel what's here. And with doubt, again, very difficult to work with doubt. It challenges us to, in some ways, a very deep core of our being where we are getting ready to have flight. And so it's important for us to become aware of this as well. Oh, here's doubt. And of course, um, with awareness, we can begin to investigate it. And you know, one of the most deepest liberative aspects of these teachings is to become more and more aware of the stories that I've told myself, the narratives, the beliefs that at times have enslaved us. And perhaps as we begin to understand these stories that fuel the, the words of doubt, I don't know if this will help me. Or you, you're not a good meditator. You, you can't sit still. I mean, who knows what type of stories that we're telling ourselves is fueling the doubt. But as we become aware, oh, here's this story. Here's this. So Bob Sharples, an Australian meditation teacher, <clears throat> he has a beautiful way of describing how to hold the practice. And particularly for those of us in a lot of doubt, um, it's often accompanied with a type of an aggression when we meditate. It's about getting something. And of course, I mean, if there was nothing to be gotten from meditation, why would we want to come and bear with this pain anyway? So, you know, it, it is kind of paradoxical. But perhaps the learning is in the loving is in the befriending. So Bob Sharple, he writes about meditation. He says, don't meditate to fix yourself or to heal yourself or to improve yourself or to redeem yourself. Rather, do it as an act of love. In this way, there's no longer any need for the subtle aggression of self-improvement and for the endless guilt of not doing enough. It offers the possibility of an end to the ceaseless rounds of trying so hard that wraps our lives in a knot. Can anybody relate to that? Yeah, wrapping our lives in a knot, the ceaseless rounds of trying so hard. The subtle aggression of self-improvement is not subtle anymore. It's, it's overt, at times even violent. 
And it's a very different notion with this idea or suggestion that I want to offer to you of, of befriending ourselves with the practice. You know, in this practice, it has two qualities. One is that it's an incredibly personal practice, and it's equally an incredibly impersonal practice. And we cannot do a spiritual bypass, bypassing the personal to trying to get into the impersonal. The personal, our story, our lives, our narratives are to be embraced, to be understood, to be acknowledged. And potentially this can be a gateway into realizing that the stories that I've told myself that I've believed to be true are limited definitions. So this notion of befriending, I feel, is incredibly, incredibly important in our practice, and it often goes unnoticed, as often our practice is fueled by this sense of rah, not even a word for it. It's rah, and it can be hard. And although we use the meditation of the breath as a practice, so I'm going to say something a little bit um, funny, in that the meditation is actually not about the breath. It's about you and your own mind and heart and where you get stuck, where you grab onto, what you push away, where it is that you're not seeing clearly. And we use the breath and other objects of meditation to help us to see more clearly into the workings of our mind and our body. And the way and our relationship to how we are with ourselves is everything from my perspective. And I have spent many, many years hitting my head against the wall trying to meditate. It took many, many years to realize that it actually hurt. And this notion of befriending, if you want a, a shortcut, the sense of befriending, the attitudinal way, like when our mind wanders off, what do we say to ourselves? Do we say, oh, you wandered off. Hey, it's great, I'm back again, come back now. Or do you say, oh, you're a dummy. Why did you do that? I'm not made of the right meditative stuff. So this way of this dialogue that we're saying to ourselves can be so enslaving. And of course, this is very important for us as practitioners to begin to become aware of these little insidious dialogues that we're commenting. Oh, you're really doing really good right now with your meditation. Oh, you're doing really bad. Am I the only one that does that? Yeah. So this little voice that's kind of not making us feel at ease, this has got to be known and watched. And of course, if you don't believe me, this poem is dedicated to you. It's called Being Made of the Right Meditative Stuff, and this is kind of my liberty of calling it this poem this way, this name. But it says, if you can start the day without caffeine or pep pills and be cheerful and ignore aching pains, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles and eat the food, same food every day, and be grateful for it, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can take criticism and blame without resentment, if you can face the world without lies and deceit, you must be made of the right meditative stuff. If you can relax without liquor, if you can sleep without the aid of drugs, if you can do all of these things, you must be the family dog. So, so much for being made out of the right meditative stuff. 
And I, I just love my dog. How can we begin with this sense of doubt is to begin to trust. To begin to trust turning into the pain and perhaps we can begin to discover our hearts turning into the places that we want to push away and discover deeper insight into these stories that I've told myself that are enslaving. Kabir writes further, um, well actually Hafiz wrote about the ruby is buried inside here in Kambir. He writes that a, there's a small ruby everyone wants, but it's fallen out on the road, and some think it's to the east of us, and others say, no, it's to the west. Some say it's among the primitive rocks, and others say, no, the ruby's in the deep waters. But Kabir's instinct told him it was inside, in what it was worth, and he wrapped it up carefully in his heart cloth. It was inside. It was inside. Perhaps we begin to develop the sense of trusting turning into these pains. And as Patrick Overton says, that when I come to the edge of all the light that I know and I step off into the darkness of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen that I'll find something to stand on, or I will be taught to fly. When I come to the edge of all the light that I know, and I step off into the darkness of the unknown, I will trust one of two things to happen. I will find something to stand on, or I will be taught to fly. And of course, when we really look at what brings us to practice, it's, I think for many of us, some type of, whether it's like this wondering, or like what is this life, or pain, or suffering, that this, you know, in order to come and to sit here and to do this, you know, there's been some incentive that has brought us into this practice, and I want to remind us of this. And obviously, of course, you've all decided some time ago, I want to come to this retreat. And what is fueling that? This is not Club Med. You know, uh, yes, there's the redwood forest, there's nice rooms, and it's beautiful. But you know, inside here can be sometimes like, pardon the language, a shit accelerator. Things are coming up left and right. It's all so peaceful on the outside, but the inside. We come here because of the pain in our lives in many ways. That's what brought me to practice. I certainly, who would want to do this? And it was pain, big time. And I'm very grateful that I found this practice because I could have went into sedation instead, instead of meditation. So I want us to just feel into this life that is so incredibly precious and fragile. And there's a very um, powerful story. I, I, I may cry. <laughs> we'll see if this can be the first time I read this and that I won't cry. 
But I, and, I, and I'm reading this in the sense of just, for the, this, this evokes a, a, a feeling. It's from a New York City taxi driver. He says, I <coughs> arrived at the address and I honked the horn. And after waiting a few minutes, I honked again. Since this was going to be my last ride of my shift, I thought just about driving away, but instead I, I decided to put the car in park and I walked up to the door and I knocked. And I heard, just a minute. And it was, uh, sounded like a very frail and elderly voice. And I could hear some things being dragged across the floor. And after a long pause, the door opened and a small woman, must have been in her 90s, stood before me. And she was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it like somebody out of a 1940s movie. And by her side was a small nylon suitcase and the apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. There were no clocks on the walls, no knickknacks or utensils on the counters. In the corner was a cardboard box filled with photos and glassware. And she asked me, would you carry my bag out to the car? And I took the suitcase to the cab and then returned to assist the woman. And she took my arm and we walked slowly towards the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. And I said, ma'am, it's nothing. I just try to treat Treat my passengers like I would want my mother to be treated. You're such a good boy, she said. And when we got in the cab, she gave me an address and asked, you know, could you drive me through downtown? It's not the shortest way, the taxi cab driver said, but she said, I don't mind. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to a hospice. And I looked in the rearview mirror and her eyes were glistening. And she said, I don't have any family left anymore. And the doctors say, I don't have very long. And the taxi cab said, I just reached over and I shut off my meter. What route would you like to take, I asked. And for the next two hours, we drove through the city. And she showed me the building where she had once worked as an elevator operator. And we drove through the neighborhood where she and her husband had lived when they were newlyweds. And she had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had gone dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd asked me to slow in front of a particular building or a corner and would sit just staring into the darkness saying nothing. As the first hint of the sun was Creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. And we drove in silence. Two orderlies came out of the cab, and as we pulled up, they must have been expecting her, and I opened the trunk and took out her small suitcase. The woman asked me, how much do I owe you? Nothing, I said. You have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers. And almost without thinking, I just bent down and I gave her a big hug. And she held on to me tightly. You just gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you so much.
Taxi driver said, I didn't pick up any more passengers after that. And I drove aimlessly lost in thought. And for the rest of the day, I could hardly talk. What if that woman had gotten an angry driver, one who was impatient? And on a quick review, I don't think I've done anything more important in my life. Tear jerker, huh? <sighs> yeah. This life is so fragile and so precious. What we're hearing and responding to is uh, what's known as the heavenly messengers. And even though what's so heavenly, these are the realities of our life. In the 29th year of Siddhartha Gautama's life, who later became the Buddha, he awakened after 29 years of kind of living in oblivion. And the powerful realizations that not any one of us can escape aging, illness, or death. No doubt, of course, we've um, improved our ways of uh, medicine and you know expanding the, the the lifespan to some degree. But in the end, there's there's no escape from aging illness, and death. Actually, the death rate has remained the same since the first human being entered into the planet. And that is one per person. That's <laughs> the death rate. It's exactly one per person. And it was these powerful realizations when Siddhartha Gautama went out of the palace and encountered as if for the first time, or all of a sudden just seeing clearly for the first time, the inescapabilities that this aging, and then later illness, and then coming into a corpse, a dead body, and realizing that he nor anyone else could escape from this. It, it shook him up deeply. What is this life? We've all been touched by these three heavenly messengers. We, we could not be here in this retreat if we have not been touched in one way or another. Illness, aging, death, the, 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 the challenges of life. And we also couldn't be in this room if we haven't encountered the fourth heavenly messenger. And Siddhartha Gautama the, the, discovered the fourth heavenly messenger when he saw some person walking in the marketplace that was very different than any other person that he ever saw. This person had more of a serene and balanced face and their walk was very steady and very simple. And Siddhartha said to um, his friend Chana, the charioteersman, who's this person? And Chana said, this is... Uh, 
a monk, a person that's dedicating their life to understand what is this life. And when Siddhartha heard that, he knew almost right then and there that this is what he must do. Even though he was destined to become a great king, he was a prince, he, he lost all taste for this type of um, way of life. He wanted to know more about what is this life if in the end there's aging, illness, and death. So the fourth heavenly messenger, and in some ways, you, I mean, in, not in some ways, in all ways, you have experienced this fourth heavenly messenger that there's something about practice, awakening, looking deeper into that there's something here. This is the fourth heavenly messenger. And I, I you know, and it, it, you could be that your fourth heavenly messenger has, has been a, a personal experience, or perhaps it's been somebody that you never met, but how they live their lives invited you to look more deeply into things. For me, my heavenly messenger was a gentleman named Bill Jackson. And after flunking out of college, majoring in getting high and drunk, skiing, and trying to find girlfriends, and not being very successful in uh, the last category, um, and being readmitted back on warning, my mother begged me, isn't there something that uh, would interest you in school? And, And school had no interest for me because earlier in my life, I had a lot of death, a brother, a best friend, a grandfather, all by the time I was nine years old. And, and, and I didn't realize just how lost and confused I was. And school didn't make any sense. And the Vietnam War and all types of things. So after flunking out, and I was looking at the course catalog, and my mother's begging me, isn't there something? And I saw this thing that said, the wisdom of the East, Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism, and Zen. I, I didn't know anything about that, but something about the East. I had some um, connection there, and the connection was, and it's humorous, but it's, I mean it very sincerely, that you know, growing up, I, I loved going to Chinese restaurants, eating Chinese food. And I loved the flavors. I loved the, the iconography, the, the, the pictures of the Buddha. The vibe was very different than Howard Johnson's, which is like, <laughs> like, like Denny's. There was something, and I was, I, and to tell you the truth, I mean, I didn't know, I was so lost, I didn't even know how lost I was. That's how lost I was. But there was something, something. And I experienced that, like, none of the school, none of these courses made any sense anymore. I'm going to do this. It's crazy. But I, I walked into that room that very first day, and something caught me off guard right away. Like, what is going on here? My professor, his name was Bill Jackson, was sitting on top of his desk in a full lotus position. <laughs> I never had a professor like this before. They all wear suit jacket and ties and they're all very uptight and they talk about things I have no interest in. And this guy, Bill, started, like just his presence, his way was like, uh, like who is this guy? And he signed to us to read the Tao Te Ching by Lao Tzu and I started reading 
the Tao Te Ching, the way of life, and I couldn't believe that someone thought about life in this way. I felt so resonant with the teachings from the Tao Te Ching. And there's one of them in particular that really struck me, and it says, there's no need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And that was a real turning point for me, that I, th I think this recognition, somewhere in my awareness, recognized that if I wanted to know something, I needed to begin to look in here. Achan Shah, one of our um, benefactors of the, you know, the, the Thai forest tradition, someone asked him once, I tell, tell me which canonical books to read, what should I study to Dharma? And he says, here, this is the place to study the Dharma, right here. No need to look outside your window for everything you need to know is inside you. And this was a powerful pointing. We've all met someone or something that pointed that there's another way. That's why we're here. Something is here. You may still ask yourself, well, where's the ruby? I'm putting in the time, where's the ruby? But the ruby is right here. It's inside. And what I love about the Buddha's story that is so incredibly meaningful to me is that it's a human story. I can relate so much to him, that story of him encountering aging and illness and death. And, and uh, I, I can relate to that so deeply. It's funny, I, just, I remember when I was a young kid after realizing, remember, I remember when I was, the uh, first time I realized I was going to die, I was four years old. I was riding down Corey Hill Road in the back seat of my parents' car. I don't know why I realized that, and I don't know if my parents were talking about something, but I had this realization, death can come at any moment, at any time, and I told my parents this, and they looked at me, and very kindly and lovingly said, don't worry, Bobby, it's not going to happen for a long, 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 long time. And I could tell by the sound of their voice they were being nice, but I actually knew even at four they were not telling me the truth. <laughs> because, you know, you can die at any time. And of course, by the time I was nine, my brother, my best friend, who I played with every day, and my grandpa, who lived downstairs, that catapulted me into a sense of grief and despair. And it's very funny to say that last January I was back visiting my elderly parents in Boston and I, as I was driving down uh, Commonwealth Avenue I took a different way from where I was going back to my parents' house and I actually was riding parallel with Corey Hill Road. And so I thought, I'm going to turn around and I'm going to go down Corey Hill Road. And it was a powerful reflection because it was 57 years later. I'm 61 now. So 57 years later, I said, I'm going to go down Corey Hill Road. And because and I recognized that at four years old, that was a profound turning point in my life when I knew it was not going to last. And it was so powerful to ride down that road again last January, Corey Hill Road even had almost bodily memories of where it was on the road, and it was just powerful to ride down that road 57 years later. 
we've all, again, this fourth heavenly messenger is the messenger that awakens us to the possibilities. One of the beautiful translations of the Buddha, sometimes he's referred to as the unconditioned one. And I love that as a definition in the sense that it's inviting this possibility that we, if there's an unconditioned, there's a conditioned. And what is the condition? It's our story, it's our narrative, it's how we see ourselves and potentially we can begin to break free of these stories that have enslaved us. And there's times we think that, oh, these stories enslave us. Uh, I'll never get through with them. It'll take me the rest of my life, or if you believe in lifetimes, it'll take me many lifetimes. But, you know, it'll take what it'll take. And actually, I think Sylvia Borstein says it's, it's the path of lessening the sufferings. And if we can begin to recognize in our practice that we're a little less stuck a little less reactive, a little bit more seen clearly into where I get stuck, where I get reactive, where I've identified with this story that has enslaved me. If I'm just seeing this just a little bit, there's these little moments of freedom that begin to grow in this life, in these moments. My teacher, Tampulu Cerro, he used to offer a very wonderful meditation that he would say was a very good meditation to die with. And it's a very good meditation that we can even momentarily experience deeper freedom and peace. And so I'd like to maybe just end with that. And so often in Buddhist psychology, it is referred to that the three greatest uh, detriments, challenges, pains, is greed, hatred, and ignorance. It's said at times that there's no fire harder than greed, no ice colder than hatred, no fog thicker than ignorance. And actually, the enlightened being, the Arahant, means the destroyer of the enemies. And specifically, what that means is the destroyer of the enemies of greed, hatred, and ignorance. And we can all be on the path of working with the lessening of that which enslaves us. But we'll just end with a very simple meditation practice. Temple Lucero his last time um, being in the United States during a whole rainy season for three months, he just singularly taught this meditation every single day for 90 days. And it's amazing how much it drilled into my skin, flesh, bones, and being. And um, it's a, a very simple and very wonderful little practice. It invites us momentarily to experience a taste of freedom. And so it's coupled with the breath. And so just breathing in and breathing out. Just your posture, be comfortable and alert. And as we breathe in and out, that in these few breaths, instead of the sense of grasping or craving or this wanting, in its place is the sense of ease and contentment 
just as it is. So just inviting that in, a sense of ease and contentment, just as it is. And breathing in and out, all types of aversion and hatred falling away, and in its place, the sense of open-heartedness, compassion. And breathing in and breathing out, the clarity of mind and heart. No ignorance here, this understanding of contentment born out of the relinquishing of the wanting, the open-heartedness, relinquishing of aversion and hatred, the clarity of mind and heart as we breathe in and breathe out. Nothing to get, nothing needs to be pushed away. Just as you breathe in and out, this feeling, inviting in the qualities of contentment and ease, open-heartedness and compassion, and clarity of mind and heart. And so we can have moments when we can experience. And it's a beautiful moment when we can allow ourselves to be free of the wanting and the not wanting in its place, a sense of contentment and ease. No money can buy contentment. It's the greatest of riches. Contentment, open-heartedness, clarity of mind and heart. So I'll just end with a reading from Tsongkhapa. The human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. Cherish your body, it is yours for this one time only. The human form is one with difficulty and it is easy to lose. All worldly things are brief like lightning in the sky. This life you must know as a tiny splash of a raindrop, a thing of beauty that disappears even as it comes into being. Therefore set your goal and make use of each day and night the human body at peace with itself is more precious than the rarest of gems. May all beings discover and experience the gateways into the heart.
And so thank you so much, and particularly as well as working with awareness with the challenges that arise, you can also maybe just momentarily, oh, breathing in and breathing out, no greed in its place, contentment, breathing in, breathing out, the relinquishing of hatred, the sense of open-heartedness of compassion, breathing in and out, clear seeing into the mind and body, free of this wanting, this not wanting, experiencing some ease and peace in this moment. It is here. This will dissolve the doubt. Thank you. And so you're welcome just to um, you want to continue sitting or go for walking meditation and we'll call you back in a bit. Actually, um, looking at the time, so it's five o'clock and um, we will not be meeting again formally in this hall until 6.45. So the next bell you ring will be the supper bell. And you're welcome to just continue sitting or walking as you like, and we'll gather again at 6.45. Thank you. Anyone is welcome to get up at any time. You don't have to wait for us for this particular sitting. <laughs>